Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. There you go. It's nice to have you join in with that this week. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the show. First thing that we need to mention this week is that a number of really good podcasting people are involving themselves in Conway's Corner podcast crossover, where we're all doing something to highlight Mr. Jerry Conway and his recent post that DC Comics don't pay royalties to people whose characters are considered derivative. So, because we covered a Jerry Conway comic two weeks ago, and we will be covering another one in two weeks, it's kind of not fell in the right place that we could actually join in officially. Right. But we do wish to point out that we do support this, and heartily encourage you all to get involved in some way. And thanks to everyone who is involved and those that thought to invite us mm-hmm. to the party. It's always nice to go to a party, isn't it? It is. Welcome to the party, pal! I spent most of them in the dark corner, though. Talking to the plants. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Usually the plants are the most interesting people, though. They are. And if you can get a conversation going with a plant, yeah. why can't you talk to a human being? Because plants don't talk back. Ah, I see. Anyway, uh, a couple of weeks ago we covered Superman Ulysses. Do you remember doing that? Uh, no, I tried to get it out of my mind. <laughs> and we asked, and they answered, we asked a number of podcasting luminaries to tell us what they thought of Superman Ulysses. Actually, what we said was, right. can somebody email in and tell us why we're wrong? Yeah. Why this is a great story. These guys didn't get that memo. Ah, right. <laughs> and why it's always nice to be agreed with. Yeah. Only one person emailed in to defend it. Right, okay. Alright, so, uh, because there was a lot of you, uh, what I've done tonight is blatantly rip off Alan and Emily Mitt- <coughs> Blatantly pay homage to Alan and Emily Middleton and I've cut all the emails together into one big long thing. You can feel free to jump in wherever you wish. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. Alright, okay. Uh, first to reply was Bob Fisher, host of the Superman Forever Radio, who called it a heaping pile. Right. buries his lead somewhat, doesn't it? Mm. I think. Bob said to call the Jeff Johns, John Romita Jr. run on Superman a heaping pile of dog shit does a disservice to dogs everywhere. Mm-hmm. I usually like Jeff Johns' stories, not this time. Add this weak, poorly written Superman story to images from an artist who apparently has no idea what Superman looks like, even from one panel to the next, and we have another disaster in the pages of Superman. I agree with Michael that the matter was made even worse with all the hype and acting as if this is great stuff. It is not. It once again shows that DC has no idea what to do with Superman, and I still put it right at the feet of Dan DiDio and Jim Lee, neither of whom I believe, based on interviews, like Superman very much at all. Glad you did a couple of shows about it, though. 
You're very welcome. Glad we saved you a couple of ranty bits as it well. It was our service to the. Industry. It was our. We read it, so you didn't have to. Yeah. Although it sounds like all these people did. So mm. you've only yourselves to blame. <laughs> Chris Franklin, host of Supermates, gets points for referencing Office Space in his heading. Fourteen points of Superflow. I like that. Uh-huh. A lot of we're a lot of flow. He never said Office Space. Yeah. He's an idiot. Idiocracy. Idiocracy. Right. Yes. Yeah, you have. You watched it with me. Yeah. You sat there cackling like a loon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both very good. Recommend them. Chris said, I'm not going to give you crap for ripping on the new 52. You reviewed a story that apparently made little to no sense, had bad artwork, and it got what it deserved, methinks. The last issue definitely sounds like the standout of the run. That was short and sweet, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Jason Trenner said, hey guys, oh well actually, Chris actually did take up our advice and didn't bother reading it. All right, so fair play to him. Yeah. <laughs> Jason Trenner said, hey guys, listened to part two of the story, and dear lord, this sounded like complete and utter, insert a few swear words to bleep out here, piece of trash. I do wonder what the next writer will do with Mr. Oz or Superman's new power. Maybe he'll just dump it like John's. Michael Bailey, host of From Crisis to Crisis, wrote this next email at home on his day off. Uh So the company's not picking up the tab this week. It's a shame, isn't it? It is. You like it when that happens, don't you? I do, I find it funny. You like betraying the, uh, sticking it to the man. Stick it to the man. Stan Lee's not done anything wrong. There's no need to do it to Stan. (laughs) Mike said, so, you wanted to know what I thought of this vapid, vacuous, non-entity of a (laughs) storyline. Another one who's burying the lead. (laughs) You ever feel betrayed by something, Michael says. Not in a huge way, like you walking in on your spouse, getting an extra delivery from the milkman, but one that still makes you feel like someone needs a good punching the face over the whole matter. That's how this story made me feel. Not that I'm actually going to punch anyone in the face, because it's just a comic book, but still. Now, wouldn't that make a great pull quote for the trade? Astounding, said Comic Book Resources. Redefine Superman for new era, says Newsarama. Someone deserves to be punched in the face for this piece of crap, Michael Bailey. When the first issue of the story was about to come out, Dandy Dio was on that puff piece that DC puts out on YouTube once a week, and they talked about how they knew something was wrong with Superman, and they were going to do something about it. According to Dan, if Superman does badly, DC suffers as a whole. So they put two huge names on the book, and to be honest, I was enjoying the series as it went along. Sure, there were a lot of nods to the Donner film, but this is Jeff Johns. I think the man is genetically incapable of not referencing that movie, because apparently it is the only thing of note to come along in Superman's history. Still, I liked the way he was playing with the characters, and there seemed to be a return to the more classic approach. Then came the ending with the new power, the supposedly new costume, and John's leaving the boat because why the hell should he stay on for an extended run anyway? I felt like I'd been had. I was promised a return to greatness. What I got was a passable story with a stupid ending. Then came the announcement that things were going to change even further after Convergence, and suddenly a story that I liked became the representation of everything I hate about contemporary Superman. So what do I think of this story? Betrayal. It also proved that the idea that if you don't like something, you shouldn't buy it because they'll change it is full of crap. Because apparently people weren't buying the book, and DC's answer was, New power! New costume! New direction! For the love of God and all that's holy, buy this book! But don't think too hard about it. Mike didn't like it either, though. Mm-hmm. Although his opinion was after the fact. Yes. While he was reading it along, he was going with it. Maybe that would have worked for us. Well, it did for us. Yeah, no, I read it as a whole. I read it monthly. Did you? Mm. Oh, yeah, because you were the one who kept telling me, yeah, um, you don't want to get too excited about this. Mm-hmm. 
Mark Wax emailed and said, I think you two have spoken to a multitude of Superman fandom. When news came that Johns and Romita were taking over Superman, I got a bit excited, hoping that this would take the character in the right direction. It didn't. A story that should have been inspiring and inviting to fans was completely the opposite. The whole story was an epic mess just to let us know Superman was lonely. I invested time and money in a story I was hoping to change the face of this character in the New 52. Instead, I got a story that, whilst it had some good attributes, Clark being back at the planet, his talks with Perry, his relationship with Jimmy, was epically disappointing. Why? Not because John's writing fell short. It did. All that Ramita's art was bad. Not to be picky, but I thought it was terrible. It was disappointing because DC just doesn't care about this character anymore. They seem to think fans will put up with mediocrity and just hope the next story is better. The company as a whole just seems to have given up on comics and Superman in particular. They moved to Hollywood for a reason. Yes, I'm looking forward to the movies and shows, but I don't like that we're getting them at the expense of the comics they're based on. The Johns and Romita story is just another way of saying goodbye to fans because after this story there may not be many fans left. The Conway Twitty of podcasting, J. David Wheater. Conway Twitty What would that make us? I don't know. Mississippi man. <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel of podcasting. <laughs> are we really that dreary? Simon and Garfunkel are not dreary. I like Simon and Garfunkel. Someone has to. <laughs> Get out. La la la. La 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 la. Anyway, Dave hosts the Dave's Daredevils podcast and wrote, I spent the night with Ulysses as his headline. I don't think he'd want to do that. No, he'd whine at you. He would, wouldn't he? tell you it was your fault he finished it. (laughs) (laughs) It's not you, it's me. Yeah, you're right. Uh, You asked for opinions, says Dave, and I have a few on the Johns Romita Jr. Superman run. I looked to the revived Superman book to finally relieve me of my ambivalence to the new 52 Superman. For the longest time, it has been slowly eating at me that I genuinely feel completely out of touch with the character for the first time since 1986. Finally, this would put me back where I belong. And the first issue came out. I gave it a look, the same way that one approaches a first date, and I liked it enough to have a second date. But then this is where things went a little caca. The abort signal went up at the end with Ulysses meeting his parents and signalled the heavy-handed, hackneyed approach that Johns was bringing to the table. I never went back. As for Ramita Jr., wrong choice for Superman. Simple as that. I love his daredevil, but that was a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. As for Ulysses himself, if DC wanted Superman to fight Goku, why didn't they just negotiate the rights for a formal crossover? That would be cool. <laughs> Superman versus... Could they, would they not have a conversation going, wait a minute, your origin happened to me? Yeah, yeah. You're the monkey god from Krypton. <laughs> uh, David concludes, anyway, two issues in, I bailed, and I am still hopelessly out of touch with the modern Superman, which is depressing on a major scale. Maybe I'm too old and my finger is too far from the pulse of modern comics. Maybe it really is me and not them. I may never know. Thanks for a pair of great episodes and echoing my thoughts. Pardon me while I chase some youths off my lawn. Thanks, David. And because we like to end on a positive note, which we do, Mm. as a general rule, Charlie Niemeyer, co-creator of Grace and Niemeyer, first thanked Mike for the Scott Pilgrim episodes. Thank you. Then he said, Personally, I have a higher opinion of this story than you guys. Whilst it is far from my favourite Superman story, I have read much worse. I do like John's character moments, restoration of the classic status quo, and the fact that we actually see Superman inspire Jimmy. 
I will agree that he is rehashing older stories. Then again, they were pre-Flashpoint stories, so I guess that means they're fair game in the new 52. Not a fan of this new superpower, and I hope it doesn't last too long, although I'm actually happy with Jimmy knowing the secret, but it just doesn't mean quite as much in the short history of the new 52. As for the ending, this is a typical ending of a John story. They all lead directly into the next one. That's why I stopped reading his Green Lantern. Every time he finished a story, the end would lead into the next. As for the end to this story, I'm hoping he was being nice to set stuff up for whoever the next writer will be. I guess we'll see after Convergence. As for the art, no, 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 no limits, no, 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 no. Is that before your turn? Might be. Okay. Don't get me wrong, I like Ramita's art on the more street-level characters like Spider-Man, The Punisher, or Daredevil. But Klaus Janssen is also not my favourite artist. Not a fan of his pencils, inks, all those tiny colours of story. So him inking Ramita's pencils really brought things down for me. Someone like Scott Hanna would have been a better choice. Overall, I found it to be a nice read, but not memorable and not epic. Like a competent filler episode that is somewhat entertaining, but missing it isn't a big deal, other than the superfloor and the reveal. Unfortunately, due to the creative team involved, it will end up being ranked with big stories like the death of Superman or whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. And that was it. That was what people thought of Superman Ulysses. Didn't really counterpoint our opinions. No. To be honest with you. But alright, fair enough. If that's the general consensus, Mm -hmm. what can you do? Just not a good story. We will conclude with an email that is not about Superman. This is from Gabriel Jimenez, who's on a tour with the email at the minute. Which is is lovely. We like hearing from Gabriel. I'm hoping my hearing will come back soon. Hey, guys. I just wanted to drop you a line as I've gone about five seconds into the Scott Pilgrim episode and think I've gone deaf. Michael's intro to the show, as surprising and cool as it was, coincided with my getting home after listening to your previous podcast while I was on the street, so I had to pump up the volume to be able to hear. In this sense, my volume was way up as the episode began, so I received quite a jolt, let me tell you. Hope to listen to the rest of the show when my ears stop ringing. Party on, Leylands. Party on, Gabriel. Well, thank you for emailing in, and we hope that your hearing is back. And he has sent us another email since then. And we will get to that next week when we start talking about our Punisher feedback. We'll be back after this commercial message with uh, our first in a short series looking at comic books that are about to be turned into television shows. It's a theme that just came to me. Is it? Well, we're padding out waiting for Multiverse <laughs> An to idea finish. That came to us the bandwagon rode down the street. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if that bandwagon's going past, yeah. I see no reason whatsoever to not jump upon it. That is for a That's what I think. We'll be right back. Gathered together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron. Dedicated to truth. Justice and geek for all mankind. It's dinner for geeks. 
Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. After DC Comics' many years of success with the Vertigo imprint, a series of comics aimed primarily at older readers, Marvel finally got into the act with Max, a series of comics primarily aimed at older readers. Whilst readers may be forgiven for the cynicism given Marvel's stated goal, where Max would apparently be different from Vertigo was that Vertigo was completely independent from the regular superhero comics that DC published, whereas Max would take place in the Marvel Universe properly. I have to confess to initially poo-pooing this idea. I envision nothing but giggling schoolboy writers being able to write sex scenes for Peter Parker and Murray Jane, something I felt would push the medium back and expose it to be the juvenile, childish drivel comics detractors had always posited it to be. I also wasn't overly enthused when, in 2001, writer Brian Michael Bendis gave an interview to Comic Book Resources where he said of the first comic to be announced, Alias, I was also toying with a pornographic version of Dial H for Hero. As I can't think of anything less mature than a porn version of a little-remembered DC comic, I truly did believe this was an idea doomed to failure. You probably won't have had an opinion, given that you were, oh, six. True. <laughs> Even at six, I didn't let you read Marvel Max. I remember it being a thing, and I remember you saying, yeah, it's not very good. I wasn't wrong, for the most part. When Howard the Duck has a Max series. Oh, yeah, but the Howard the Duck series by Steve Gerber was pretty damn good. Why, because he took the piss out of it? Yeah, it was good, it was quite good. Anyway, curiosity regarding Max won out. Whilst I thought the idea of setting this firmly in the Marvel Universe was the stupidest idea I'd heard since that Superman movie pitch where Krypton didn't blow up, Alias was to follow the adventures of Jessica Jones, a low-level super-powered lady now trying to find her way in the Marvel U as a private detective, and Bendis was an adroit crime fiction writer. Whilst I found his ultimate Spider-Man to be overly mannered in its writing, langorious in its pacing, and frankly quite boring as a whole, I'd thoroughly enjoyed his work on his early indie books, Jinx, Goldfish and Torso. The art was rough in those books, but the stories were gripping and interesting. It seemed that the idea of this series, a gritty, noir-infused crime drama about a down-at-heel P.I. operating around the edges of the Marvel U, had possibilities. And if nothing else, it did give Max a separate identity from Vertigo, presumably to nip any comparisons in the bud. Initially, it was announced that the central character in Alias would be Jessica Drew, a.k.a. Spider-Woman, something Bendis distanced himself from almost immediately. Whilst he played it down in interviews saying it was just the evolution inherent in any creative process, there were rumours that, upon receipt of the script, Marvel balked at this series featuring an already established character as its lead. They didn't seem to have any problem with Luke Cage and Captain America appearing in the series, though, so I would take this with a huge gob of salt. Bendis was to be joined on the series by artist Michael Gados, and perhaps showing his overall involvement in Marvel as a company, Gados was brought on board by Bendis, when traditionally it is the editor's job to pick a creative team. It seems timely and apt, and of course bandwagon jumping, to cover this series now. The Marvel-Netflix agreement to produce content for the streaming service yielded tasty fruit in the form of the recently released 13-part Daredevil series. And the follow-up is to be a series called AKA Jessica Jones, based upon Alias. It's not going to be called Alias because there was a Jennifer Garner series called Alias. Veronica Mars, Breaking Bad and Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23, actress Kristen Ritter has been cast as Jessica, and former Doctor Who David Tennant has landed the role of the Purple Man. Whether this means we'll see a true adaptation of the series remains to be seen.
On this episode, we'll be doing something quite unusual. We'll be covering our favourite issues alongside an overview of the entire series in preparation for the upcoming Netflix event. What do you think about it becoming a television show? I'm quite looking forward to it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because I like Alias, and I think it'll work as a TV show. Yeah, I mean, it does seem there's a shame... There's an awful lot of profanity in it that they're not going to get away with, even on Netflix. But a lot of that is to do with Bendis is now allowed to swear with Marvel characters. Yeah. It tones down an awful lot as the series carries on. Yeah, once he gets past the novelty of the fact that he can swear, because, you know, that's mature. Yeah. And that's exactly what the comic is trying to be. Mm-hmm. Know, but it, it can't have the same backstory. No, it can't, and that's a big part Yeah, she can't be her. a part of the Avengers. Yeah. At some point. Maybe they should have done the Avengers with her on the team before they did Alias. Sorry, a.k.a. Jessica Jones. Yeah, yeah. That may have worked. And I'd have just flop. I'd only be in one scene in one of the films. And that may have worked quite well. Or she could have been in the new Avengers. Uh, the first story out running through issues one through five didn't exactly set my world on fire. Yeah. I do apologise, but uh, Jessica is hired in this story by a woman to find her sister, but it all goes a bit tits up when the sister is killed and the client goes missing with none of the phone numbers Jessica was provided working. On the face of it, it's a good setup for a PI mystery, but it was full of Bendis-isms. For one, there is no need for this to be five issues. Mm. Issue two, especially, was glacial in its pacing. And it only furthers the plot in, like, what, the last three or four pages? I forgive Bendis when it comes to stuff like that. Do you? You forgive him for being boring? Well, when it comes to his pacing, and it's the same for his Avengers in the long run, it's the same for Ultimate Spider-Man, I I don't mind him being slow, because it's a long story. He's playing the long game. Yeah. You definitely know you're in the long haul when you're reading the Avengers, so his pacing just isn't all that bad, especially when I burned through it over a summer holiday. Well, this, I'll, uh, 28 issues of this, I'll let it take you to read them. I started yesterday. <laughs> I finished just before we recorded. See, so, you know. Yeah. I mean, even with that caveat, though, I did feel that this was a little bit of a weak opener. Like you yeah. just said, it seems to get by purely on the fact that Bendis can now say f***. Yeah. And that's primarily the motivation for it. It doesn't. It knows what it wants to be. It's just not the yet. It doesn't know how to be it yet. Yeah. He's but, not quite got the formula down. Yeah, yeah. He's. It does seem like he's trying to be mature and he's trying to be funny. And it all just comes He's trying bit, too hard to be those things. Yeah, and you can definitely tell it. it, it everyone's unlikable. He's not quite got dialogue that dialogue I would yet. argue Jessica does not become likable. She does moderately honourable things, yeah. but she's frequently not a likeable character, even in the likeable stories. I, I found her the least relatable character in this. Um, I, I liked her unlikableness. I like Luke Cage in this much more than I like her. I guess. I, I quite like her because she is quite unlikable. Yeah. When Because she's the real-life grounded Avenger. Yeah. And there's something that I quite like about that. She's not likeable because you've got to contrast her against the likeable people like Captain America. I didn't get why all these men kept falling for her. Don't I didn't you. understand that at all. I thought there was some nice moral ambiguity to it, particularly the ending. 
because it's just a political game, isn't it? Yeah, One yeah. side is trying to blackmail the other side for his friendship with superheroes. Yeah. So there's certain elements of politics to it that it was alright. But I thought Bendis was often quite contemptuous of superheroes. And this story did nothing to dissuade me of that opinion. Because there are scenes where Captain America's been manipulated for political gain. And Jessica's own self-loathing of the fact that she was a superhero. So yeah. Captain America's played is really naive. Yeah. And Jessica's embarrassed by the whole superhero thing. Like he's embarrassed to be writing it. I don't get she was embarrassed by it. Do you know? Because I think it comes down to the whole she was an Avenger, but of what happened with the Purple Man, she's living with... Guilt. The guilt, and she's a little bit of a doesn't like superheroes because she could never be them. Because she's not good in... Well, arguably, she's not pure enough to be a superhero. Yeah, exactly. She's not, but... You know, arguably... Although I suppose you could argue Matt Murdock is at least religious. Yeah. So, yeah. Alright, you know, I still don't like it very much, but you're arguing your point quite well. There's some interesting ideas, though. And like you say, it's it's pure noir. And there is something pretty cool, against my better judgement, right. of this being set in the Marvel Universe. But you're absolutely right when you say he's not quite got what he wants it to be yet. Yeah. It's like the pilot. The first five issues are a pilot to a TV show. Mm. And then he like he went away and he looked at what he liked about it, what he wanted to do with it, and then he refined it for the rest of the series. Yeah. So the, the opening story arc isn't Alias at its best. It's not bad. And if you can tolerate Bendis' writing tricks, mm-hmm. which this is full of, yeah. then it's, it's quite enjoyable. I'm not entirely made up with Michael Gaydos's art, which is dark and indistinct most of the time, but it's really unappealing when he draws superheroes, isn't it? His Captain America's ugly as sin. Yeah. The art is ugly. And yes. It's, I, I, I do quite like it, but I think just like the story, it's, it's rough as it opens up, but as he gets more... It gets stronger later on, not as wonky, but... It's a bit crap. It's a turd, but at least later on it's a polished turd. You think? Yeah. Alright, well, well, we'll be discussing the art as we go through it. I actually think I may have preferred us not actually seeing other characters. Similar to, I presume, what the Netflix show's going to be. Mm. Like, Daredevil, there was nobody else in it. It would have been nice if, you know, Ben Urich had crossed over into this, or maybe if we'd seen Luke Cage in Daredevil. But I yeah. don't know if they'd even worked all that out when they were shooting Daredevil. I like seeing Matt Murdock in this, though. Yeah, but well, he's not in this opening arc, is he? Yes. Is he? Where yeah. is he in the opening one? I've, I've forgotten this. Already. He's in the second issue or whatever. Oh, yes, so he is. Yeah, she gets arrested. And we have page after page of um and ah and the policeman interrogating her. Yeah, yeah. And then Matt Murdock walks in and basically says, right, this is over. She's yeah. my client. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, yeah, good use of Matt Murdock as an actual proper lawyer. And I did... Another thing I had a problem with this, everybody seemed clueless apart from Jessica. Yeah. Jessica's the smartest person in the room because Bendis wants her to be because she's his pet. Again, he, he, he levels that down later. He levels it down a little bit as we go along, yeah. Mm. You're absolutely right. Issue four is plugging the Ultimates. And it's everything I dislike about Mark Miller. His quote about superheroes, right. as quoted here... Uh, originally from Wizard 121. You'd hate them. That's how I'd feel about superheroes if they were suddenly using my hometown as their playground. 
the lunat- the ultimates are really a government exercise to put some of these lunatics on a register and pay them to kick the crap out of other super people causing trouble. He shouldn't be writing superheroes if that's his opinion, should he? But all of the quotes are a bit... We're a bit too cool, cool for school, aren't they? You've got Quizada saying, when Ultimate Hulk goes on a rampage, he doesn't stop till he's beating everyone up and drunk everybody's beer. Yeah. <laughs> Comic books have been locked in a creative pattern and moral views established in the 40s and 50s. Radioactivity turns a white middle-class American into superhero crime fighter. Tune in next month for some more of the same for the next 50 years. Mark Miller blasted onto the comic scene as the iconoclastic battering ram. Breaking through the cliques as a creative force establishing all new, all hip characters and contexts for the next 50 years. And that was Bill Jemis. And the very fact that he said all hip dates him even more than the characters that he's trying to denigrate. I will defend the Ultimates, though. It was good when it first appeared. Have you tried reading it recently? No. Yeah. Maybe you better not. Yeah. I don't don't mind superheroes being super-powered police as long as... It's not in the the, the, the the current, the normal books. The regular books. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, they did take a lot of the Ultimates for the film. Yeah. But the characters are the old versions, not the new versions. You know what I think? A little bit of column A, a little bit from column B. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Issue 6 through 9 has Jessica been hired by Rick Jones's wife, who isn't Marlo, to find Rick who has gone missing. Uh, I thought this one was a little bit of a shaggy dog story. It may have been just me, but I was never convinced by this woman's story from the get-go. Even when I was looking at her going, Rick Jones is married to Marlo in the Hulk. Yeah. Who's this woman? So even with that, Jessica was hired. Essentially, it's Jessica figuring out what you as a reader already knew, that this wasn't really Rick Jones. Yeah. And I don't think that a reader should ever be in front of a mystery story. The reader should always be on the back foot with a mystery story, so stuff is a surprise to you, hence the term mystery. Yeah. Knowing the ending to a particular story isn't necessarily a bad thing, but did you ever think this was Rick? No. Alright. Maybe. I didn't know he was married in the Hulk. Alright, so maybe it worked a little bit better for you then. Yeah, but I did think that Jessica wasn't entirely convinced either. But yeah, she does go through it being a little bit okay. And the whole point of the story is people will always believe something that isn't true if they want to believe it. Well, there's also the thing as well when she met him. Did he look astonishingly like Rick Jones, I've, as in twin? I don't, I guess. For this story, I mean, because I can't tell because Michael Gerdos doesn't draw any of these characters to look like they normally do. I guess he's off yeah. model on everybody except Jessica, who we've never seen before. Yeah. So, I'll just say that's what got me about it. The minute she met him, shouldn't she have said, you don't look like Rick Jones? I guess. Oh, okay. What, what I found funny about it is, um, there, there are bits where it's extracts from his novel. Which are very good. But yes. the one about Captain America, where Rick Jones says, I was just his face, he was turning me into someone else. He gave me uh, Bucky's costume. <laughs> I'm other going, wait, no, you, you put on his costume without him knowing. Yes. You forced yourself into, into Bucky. Don't, don't go lying for Excuse your me. audience. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you, you, you're not wrong. You're absolutely right. Um, there's an interesting subplot involving internet chat rooms. 
Yeah, I, I, I liked that I much more. The subplot, yeah. yeah, the subplot essentially revolves around a woman has hired Jessica to find out what her husband is doing on all these so she poses as a gay guy in a chat room yeah. yeah and it turns out he's gay yeah and basically Jessica just says to him just go home and tell your wife she just wants to know the truth that's yeah. all she's interested in that subplot yeah was better than the actual story I, I love the bit about she's she's browsing the chat room and it's here I am pretending to be a, to be a man isn't the internet 99% the other way around <laughs> Yes. So that, uh, yeah, that bit was funny and much more better. Much more better. Yes. I was like, you, you said that when you were little. It's much <laughs> more better. There was a setup for Jessica dating Scott Lang. Carol tries to set them both up. Carol Danvers is yep. a subplot in this. But it was this uh, where Bendis' dialogue really got on my nerves. And his utter loathing of superheroes came through in the dialogue. Like, you ever see Thor in person? Gayest thing I ever saw. I liked that. I did, you? Yeah. See, because I'm going to be honest with you, I live with somebody who would not think that was the gayest thing she ever saw. Yeah. She'd be like, Thor! Oh, show me your hammer. But when you think about it, the Mac story is reality looking through in, in superhero comics, right? Yeah. So, not everyone's going to like superheroes. And when you think about it, when you really do think about it from a real, from a critical reality point of view, Thor is a little bit poncy. <laughs> He's not as poncy as Ulysses. Yeah, but let's be honest, he can be a bit of a ponce. So, whether it is Bendis' contempt for these characters coming through in the dialogue, I do think that not everyone's going to like superheroes, and not everyone's going to take them seriously, because if... If there were people dressed up like that in reality, no one would take them seriously. That's why they've redesigned the costumes for the movies. But that's another thing. A little bit too much reality in superhero comics isn't a good thing. But it's not a superhero comic. The superheroes are just a superhero comic. But it's not. It's a private detective comic. Yeah, the superheroes just have cameos in it. Yeah, basically. And they're not very good when they're in. So, yeah, that's why, you know, in, in, in Thor's comic you take Thor seriously because the being played is to be taken seriously. But from an, you know, from a, 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 like, how old's that kid? Like, 17, 18? He is only supposed to be a teenager who's got a little bit of a crush on Jessica Jones. So, you know, he would think Thor's a bit of a ponce. Or he's trying to just to appear mature and edgy. Yeah. Much like the comic, mm-hmm. in many ways. There was one bit that made me laugh out loud. She's researching Rick Jones. And uh, she thinks, well, maybe we're related because we've got the surname Jones. Yeah. So she phones her mum and she says, I know it's unlikely. That's why I didn't ask if it was related to Indiana Jones. Yeah. That was funny. Mm-hmm. I did genuinely laugh at that. And Rick Jones's book throughout the entire issue is accompanied by art from Bill Skenkovich. Yeah. Whose work is much better than Gerdos' stuff. <laughs> Come on, it is. It's different art styles. It's it's a better art style. It complements David Mack's covers a lot more. I don't like David Mack's covers. I really, really like them. Yeah, you like all that abstract weirdness, though, don't you? Yeah. I mean, as pieces of art, they're perfectly acceptable. As yeah. covers to the comic book, I never really got what they were going for. Just, it, just, it's, it seems to me like they're trying desperately to be Sandman. Yeah. Some of them, later on... Mm. A better 
covers for comics than almost every single comic book title out there, though. Yeah, as we get further on, they do actually start reflecting the interior a bit better. Yeah. But I think it, a lot of it, it goes back to what you were saying earlier on. They're still deciding what it wants to be. Hmm. And at the moment, it is very much trying to just mimic Vertigo. Yeah. And it's not found its own voice yet. And as they start doing Nick Fury, the Garth Ennis Nick Fury series, and Brian Azarello's Cage, mm. and it starts finding its own voice and its own identity, it improves immeasurably. Mm. But he's still he's still working on it a little bit there, isn't he? I do think all of the covers are hands down the best thing about the series. That collage stuff. Yeah. Alright, go to issue 10. Which we are going to discuss in depth, because yeah. it is one of the best issues of the series. How does that have anything to do with what's going on inside? It doesn't, but it's a nice piece of work. It's not, though. It's not, that's not even appealing. It's like it's a, it's a shot of lots of Polaroids of somebody blinking. If it was in the, the, the drug story arc later on... Yes, that would work. Yeah. If it was in an art gallery... I may look at it and go, oh, yeah, I like what he's doing there. As a cover to a comic. It's, it's not found its its feet yet. The story has. The issue is really good. The cover's a bag of weed. <laughs> but everything is better. Everything, the apparently. Uh, none of these early issues have titles either, did you notice? Yeah. So only later on, he starts giving it a title. Uh, Gados paints this issue, by the looks of things, which he hasn't really done with the other ones it's watercolour yeah maybe that's why I like this one better because <laughs> it, it's painted rather than his, his crappy dark artwork it's not crappy let's be fair yeah. I don't think it's crappy it's not to my tastes it suits the story it's got ugly though anyway it's a good ugly a it, pretty kind of ugly if you say so yeah <laughs> Jessica is at the offices of the Daily Bugle. J. Jonah Jameson, esteemed publisher of that major metropolitan newspaper, is intrigued that Jessica used to be a superhero. That's going to be the opening, isn't it? My name is Jessica Jones. I used to be a superhero. Until... <laughs> Purple man's blackmailed you. You're going to die. <laughs> when you've been brainwashed by the Purple Man, you've got nothing. You end up wherever they dump you. Where am I? God, New York. <laughs> Smells like piss. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Jones does burn no <laughs> Anyway, shall I carry on with this synopsis? Uh, he's intrigued that Jessica used to be a superhero and feels that makes her perfect for a little scheme he has cooking. Robbie Robertson does not approve of the scheme, whereas Ben Urich seems to be completely in the dark. He's not the only one. Jessica is suddenly led on the fact that the Bugle is hiring her to find out who Spider-Man is. Everyone is shocked. Jonah continues that the recent outing of Daredevil has inspired him to do the same with Spider-Man. At the very least, the Bugle will get a decent headline out of it. He hands Jessica a collection of documents concerning appearances of Spider-Man and his popular hangouts. Jessica suddenly smiles and says she'll take the case two months later. Jonah calls Urich into his office to yell at him about Jessica's expenses for the last four weeks. There's an invoice for a soup kitchen in Hell's Kitchen. Jessica has been helping out, though, saying she thinks one of the regulars may be Spider-Man. There's a $600 receipt here for tapioca pudding, yells Jonah. Then there's the other bills, one for the Tony Stark Foundation home for wayward orphans. Why is she buying orphans cupcakes, yells Jonah. Well, replies Ben, Spider-Man may be an orphan, so... So then why is there an invoice for St. Catherine's Hospital? 
Well, she heard Spider-Man may be an orderly there. In the AIDS ward? Ben shrugs. And this one, for a soup kitchen. She's scamming us. Robbie then pipes up that these are legitimate expenses incurred in the process of an ongoing investigation. Jonah screams. We're going to sue this woman. Take her for everything. Drag her name through the mud. For what? Asks Robbie. Feeding orphans and volunteering in an aid centre? Jonah harumps. If we do this, you'll have your name dragged across every 24-hour cycle across America. Jonah calls to fire Jessica, who sits smiling at her desk as Jonah's tirade echoes around her office. Yay! It was easier to do that one in dialogue, wasn't it? Because, um... It's all dialogue. This is basically a script for a play, isn't it? Which I really quite liked in this issue. It's a bunch of painted stills, by and large, and the dialogue appears down the side of the picture. There are some places where it's quite difficult to read. Mm-hmm. Where the writing is just on the back of the pictures, like when he's talking to Ben at the end. That was a bit of a misstep. It is much better when they actually put it on a, a white background or white writing on a black background. That works quite well. Uh, and it's been said that Bendis doesn't give a toss about continuity other than the continuity of his own stories. Right. And that seems to fit here because suddenly Betty Brandt has turned into Jenna Fisher from The Office. Right. And bears no resemblance whatsoever to the Betty Brandt that we've been in comics for years. Also, she's not been Jonah's secretary for years. Right. She's a reporter now. Glory Grant was his secretary for ages. Not only was she still a... Well, he's merged Jonah Jameson. Well, he was merger. It changes too much. Yeah. But anyway, Betty Grant hasn't... Betty Grant... Betty Brandt has not been his secretary for years. So I presume that Marvel doesn't have style guides anymore... Because further to that, Robbie Robertson does look doesn't look anything like Robbie Robertson. Yeah. Does he? No. So you're still going to argue that Gaydos is good at this? Yeah. I kind of like some continuity with my people. I kind of think they should look the same. You know that last, the second to last issue was written especially for you? Yes, I know. <laughs> I'm going to point that out when we get there. I took great joy in pointing <laughs> that out when we get there. <laughs> if he's going to call me out, yeah, I'm yeah. going to give him a damn good reason for doing so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, page two, Jonah, there's another continuity glitch, if you want to call it that. Jonah says, tell Hendrix I want this column out of my paper. These damn guys and their damn conservative agenda. Jonah's actually been portrayed as being a conservative. Right, okay. So was the editor asleep at the wheel this week? Maybe. So the the, the drawings of Robbie Robertson and Betty Brand don't match. Right. Betty hasn't been his secretary for ages, and Jonah has now changed political affiliation. Yeah. Other than that, <laughs> I actually quite like this issue. <laughs> Jonah's, he's very coarse... When he says, I don't have time to change your tampon for you. I thought that was a bit yeah. gross. Yeah. And also out of character. I don't... Jonah's never been portrayed as being a sexist. Yeah. Or a racist. Or a bigot. Yeah. Unless it's about Spider-Man. Yeah. So he's treating of What he said to Jessica, though, was a bit... I didn't like that. Yeah. Okay. You seem <laughs> to agree. All right. Jonah references Peter Parker by name... And given later revelations about Jessica's high school life, she makes no mention or even acknowledgement that she knows it. Hmm. Which I thought was a bit strange. Do you think he just hasn't got her origin worked out at this point? Probably. So she doesn't make any reference to knowing Peter. It was a great little issue. 
I like the structure of it. I like the the still paintings and the dialogue and the fact this was a stage play. And it's easy to play Jonah as a caricature, mm. which, let's be honest, he is yeah. in this issue. But it works as an offbeat comedy, doesn't it? What do you think? I didn't like it. Did you not like this one? Nope. I thought this was the best one of the run. No, I... Why do you not like it? Um... Alright, so the art's nice, isn't it? The art is the best it's been so far. Gados is very good at painting or watercolours or whatever you say it is. Yeah. The art is the best it's been thus far, with the caveats that I've already mentioned. The story is essentially the scam she plays on Jonah. Yes. And that's a good, nice, clever little scam. Yes. Well done to Bendis for experimenting with the storytelling in this issue. It's a nice little experiment. Sadly, it falls flat on its face because it's Bendis writing it. Why? Bendis has so many Bendisisms. For example, um, uh, yeah. well, yes. uh, mm, mm. And like you said, it's a script. So when I'm reading the script and almost every single line is mm, uh, mm, uh, uh, which works fine in, in, you know, thought bubbles, in, in dialogue, in regular comic storytelling, but here it doesn't work. You can't have a script where the only thing people say is, hmm, uh, 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 uh. Yeah, to add what I'm flicking through as you're talking, and yeah, J. Jonah Jameson, so, Jessica, so. And then further down, I reel it to death. Oh, well, you did. I did, but who were you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I should be the one complaining about Bendis' writing. But... I get it that it slows you down, it makes you read it, but when the only thing you're reading isn't worth the time... Well, see, one of the things that Bendis' fans like to point to is his realistic dialogue. No, I like that as well. It just doesn't work with this kind of writing. See, I don't like it. Because, as I've said before, if you actually listen to a conversation between two people regularly, yeah. not, not what we're doing now, where we've scripted all our ad-libs, <laughs> but if you listen to a regular conversation between two people, it's boring as hell. Yeah, I, I had to analyse transcripts for two years. See? So... I want the dialogue to be a little bit stylized. Yeah. I want it to be funny and witty and clever in that way that we aren't. It's escapism. Yeah. And that's why I always find stuff with realistic dialogue to be a bit of a chore to mm. watch or read. Yeah. And that's what I always find about Bendis. I always think he's trying to be... He gets compared to being David Mamet a lot. Right. Only he doesn't swear as much. But he, it's... I ultimately, that's one of my big problems with it. Once you notice his shtick, yeah, it's really hard to not notice his shtick, mm. and I don't really like his shtick. I, 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 I genuinely do. Reading his Avengers mm. and having him write it. Would you have thought the same thing about the Avengers if he'd been reading it monthly? Probably not. Yeah. But well, I never do with Bendis. I know what he's like. Yeah, so I don't read it well, monthly. Uh, but, yeah, the Ultimate Spider-Man as well, it slows you down, and I do feel it makes it a lot more relatable. Having dialogue... It never slowed me down on Ultimate Spider-Man. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I read them in two minutes. But having dialogue be kind of realistic like that, it for me, it makes it a bit more relatable, because it's still... You still know you're reading a comic, and it's still stylized in that way, but it's still as real to reality without being too boring. Apart from in this issue. But in this issue, the... You know, it's it's fine. He, he wanted to do an experiment. It's just because it was him doing it, it mm. didn't work. Yeah, alright. I like this one. <laughs> and also, the, the, it's a bit... The pacing 
the structure of it is poor as well. It's top heavy. Let's say it's 22 pages long, right? Yeah. The setup is 20 pages long. Let's say. Give yeah. or take. So when Jessica says, yeah, you're already in your back half of the issue, and then you've got about four pages where Jonah says, ah, she scammed us. Well, you've got a lot more than that, but it's it's Jonah belly aching for most of those pages. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Uh, there's an there's an advert. Kevin Smith swings with Spider Man and the Black Cat swings. You know what they did there? Yeah, yeah. Kevin Smith making a sexual innuendo. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> and it's a picture of the Black Cat with her top undone all the way down to her belly button, bent over so she's thrusting her ass up. Why did the uh, Why did the vocal minority not complain about that? Because I think that's far more offensive than the Milo Manura cover. Because if memory serves from reading Black Cat comics when I was a kid, she didn't used to have a plunging neckline. Yeah. So that's uh, that's worse than anything we've seen recently. But no one belly ached about that. When was Tumblr a thing? <laughs> Probably not in 2002 <laughs> when this yeah. comic came out. Alright, fair enough. <laughs> we had a minor disagreement, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the series starts coming together with the next story arc, issue 11 through 14, Rebecca, Please Come Home. Jessica is hired by a mother in Largo, New York, to find her teenage daughter, Rebecca, oddly enough, who is missing, presumed dead. All signs point to Rebecca's father, a belligerent and oafish man, but one neither Jessica nor the police nor the town's reporter think did it. It then turns into Twin Peaks, or any other small-town America story, where Jessica discovers that, beneath the facade of picket fences and apple pie, there lies a seedy underbelly of anti-mutant hatred, homophobia, racism and general intolerance that sickens her. Her investigations lead her to think Rebecca may have been murdered due to her leading everyone to believe she's a mutant, but when Rebecca's father has his throat slit by Rebecca's aunt, she starts to piece it all together. Rebecca hasn't been murdered. She simply ran away to be with her lover and remove herself from her toxic hometown. Easily, I thought, the best of the story arcs so far. Bendis manages to make this story all work. Although exactly how Jessica figured out that the kid stood next to her when they wheeled Rebecca's father away was the clue to where the girl Rebecca was. I thought that was a bit woolly. Did you get that? A little bit. Yeah, that seemed quite convenient. The dialogue actually funny in this one rather than irritating. And the plot builds its mysteries nicely. Rebecca is the weak point. Yeah. She is a stone-cold outcast teen cliche as you can get. Yeah. She does awful poetry, pretentious art, nobody understands me. But he actually makes it work in that nobody does understand her. Mm. She lives in quite a bigoted town populated by bigoted people. And to his credit, he doesn't make everybody Mm. in town like that. He's careful to paint them with different shades. And all Rebecca wants is to not be there. And the story actually concludes with Jessica not wanting to leave her there and take her back with her. Yeah. So, go on, tell me you didn't like this one either. No, I did. It is. It's just the best story arc so far, isn't it? There's yeah. A, there's an actual investigation for her to get involved with. We take her out of her comfort zone. So, we've not got any superheroes making cameos in these issues, which puts me off because Gators can't draw them. I'm wondering, is this going to be the template for the series? Don't know. In that it's just a story detective mystery thing. 
Yeah. That takes place in the Marvel Universe, but the Marvel Universe is irrelevant to it, with the exception of anti-mutant hatred, which they're not going to be able to do in the TV series because they don't own the rights to mutants. Yeah. So I'm wondering if this is going to be the template for the show. Hmm. Different investigative cases and stuff. Could be. So that one was alright. Yeah, no, it was good. I did, I did like that one. But it, it, it's very much, you know, the middle section of Preacher. Yeah. Where he's in the southern town. Yeah. Being a, being a sheriff. Yeah, being a sheriff fighting against the racist people. Yeah. It's that. You know, you're absolutely right. She, she moves there. She, she starts a relationship with a police officer. She's fighting against bigoted racists. Yeah, you're not wrong. It is. Yeah. It's not the only thing he, he rips off Garth Ennis. Because we'll cover that later on. Uh, issue 15 is another standalone issue where Jessica dates Scott Lang. She's also now working as Matt Murdock's bodyguard after he's been outed as Daredevil. It's quite a funny one, this. Yeah. There is some quite a funny dialogue, although the first half is just her and Luke Cage having a conversation. Um, I struggle to take Luke Cage seriously when he's drawn to look like Mr. Motivator. <laughs> look him up. Lovely Lister, Mr. Motivator. Um, the practice of drawing one panel and then copying and pasting it into the next panel is also really irksome in this issue. There's one, there's a page in here where Gados draws one panel on a page and then he just pastes it for the rest of the page. That one's close enough, isn't it? That's yeah. So, you've got a page here, there's no page numbers, but you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten panels on this page. He's drawn three panels. That one, that one, and that one. Uh, and then just photocopied that, and then that, and then that. There's those two as well. How is that different to that one? Oh, his mouth's a little bit Oh, wait, clo- wait, no, Jessica Jones is different than that one. Yeah. There we go. All right. And yeah. it's it's starting to get a little bit wearisome. Is copying and pasting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, a, a conversation with Scott Lang's quite nice. Scott seems far too nice a person. Yeah. To be with Jessica. I didn't like Scott Lang in this. Why not? Well, for a start, he's Scott Lang. What's <laughs> wrong with Scott Lang? <laughs> uh, Scott Lang was great in McAleeny and Leighton's Iron Man, bro. I'm, I'm sure he was. <laughs> But this is the problem with having uh, an established superhero in it for too long. Carol Danvers, fine, she's only in it. Yeah, she shows up to have coffee with her, doesn't she? Yeah, even Captain America, he's, he's there for like a page. two pages. Yeah. yeah, Scott Lang is an inte- Luke Cage is the exception. Yeah, Luke Cage works in this darker because environment. Luke Cage is a is a street level yeah crime fighter, not a superhero. Like Matt Murdock works. Yeah, but. Scott Lang is an adventure. He's too much of a superhero to work in this story. Right. So that he just looks... In the Avengers, I'm sure he's good and likeable, but in this, he's unlikable because of how good he is. He's too nice. He seems out of place. Yeah. Right. I get what you're saying. He's too too nice for Jessica's world. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Don't disagree with you. Issue 16 through 21, which is, my God, a six-issue story arc. Some of these covers are nice. Yeah. I'll give you that. Some of these are quite pleasant. Uh, is The Underneath, which centres on Jessica's investigations into the youngest spider woman 
teenage girl Matty Franklin, who had a short-lived run in the late 1990s and has fallen in with the wrong crowd. Apparently one of Bendis' pet inventions that he was in love with at this time was MGH, mutant growth hormone, a drug taken by ingesting the blood of mutants which gives normal people a massive high. Matty has been strung out and used by a gang, but for some reason that I don't think was ever explained, ended up in Jessica's apartment. Jessica is then kind of Uh semi-hired by Marla Madsen, Jonah's wife, to locate her for Jonah, who've both adopted Matty. Uh, Again, this is a really good arc after the one issue interlude that was issue 15. The underneath is pretty good, for five of its six issues, but the conclusion's botched. Yeah. I thought, the last issue's just full of such magnificent examples of realistic dialogue as, yeah, blue, and hurrah, <laughs> and it just doesn't feel like a satisfying conclusion. Everything's wrapped up, mostly, and the Scott Lang-Jessica Jones tension's nicely handled, but it felt a little too easy to get Matty clean. And I don't even recall if this is ever followed up again. No. In terms of her living with the Jameson. So where is she now? No. Now that Marla Madsen's dead... Yeah. ...and Jonah's Murr, is she still Jonah's adopted daughter? Matty Franklin just seems to have been forgotten about. I can't remember the last time she showed up in a Spider-Man comic. Mm. I mean, she is part of the, the John Byrne reboot, which most people just like to think of as being a bad dream. But she's now been an alias, so she's established as still being part yeah. of the Marvel U. So where is she now? I don't know. I don't know why I'm asking you. You're not going to know. Does Dan, has Dan Slott, lover of the Spider-Man history and continuity, not brought her back? Was she not in Spider-Verse? I don't know. Do you know, I don't remember if Matty Franklin was in Spider-Verse, but that's how memorable Spider-Verse was. I have never read it. Maybe not. I've not read Spider-Man in, in months, years. Well, you should. I should, but I'm waiting for Dan Slott to finish so I can read it all. Uh, That being said, I might be waiting for a good decade. You might be waiting for a good long time. Uh, Issue 16 opens with a cracking bit where Jessica's just idly shopping and somebody tries to rob the place. So she tries to throw a can of beans at him and misses. Mm. And she's like, wow, I suck. He's like ten feet away. That was funny. That was really, really funny. And uh, the fact that the guy charges her for cigarettes after she just saved his life yeah. was also funny. Why was she in her apartment? I, I don't know. You've only read this today. Because she got her confused for Jessica Drew? You think? It's the only, it's the only explanation you can come up with. Yeah, because yeah, Jessica Drew is looking for her later on, isn't she? That's possible. Yeah, alright, I'll go with that no applies explanation. It's possible we both missed it. I don't know. All the covers to this one are quite interesting. Jessica with wings. That's a lovely one. It Cover is. to issue 18 is a really good piece of watercolour. Absolutely nothing to do with the issue. Yeah. But a really, really good cover. Now that's just weird. What? Seeing Scott Lang naked. Seeing Scott Lang have sex. You don't Cl- see it. Close-ups of face during still counts. Yeah. What's Lines of dialogue about still this. counts. Back in issue one, Jessica is going through this, I just want to feel malarkey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she lets Luke Cage take her roughly from behind. Now, whether that is he's invading her personal back door, or whether he's taking her from behind, is, it's never outright stated, but judging by her face, and the fact that she says, I'm going to let you do something 
that you've never done before. I want to do something I've never done before. And the fact that she says, I wanted to feel something, pain, yeah. quite a lot. Yeah. Kind of leads you to believe that this is this is backdoor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this opening page kind of implies she's now letting Scott Lang do the same thing to her. And judging by her face, he's not as impressive as Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right, yeah, you're right. We actually get to see Ant-Man. So in that case, that's actually not bad writing. No, it's a good callback. Yeah, because they're going back to that and they're already setting up the relationship with Luke Cage. Yeah, well, she goes through this entire series thinking of Luke all the time. Yeah. It is. He does actually do a very good job of establishing why her relationships post-Luke aren't working. Yeah. Because she's hung up on Luke Cage. Because mm-hmm. obviously he gives good anal. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason he hangs around with Iron Fist. <laughs> hey! They used that joke in the book. Did they? Yeah. When? In the last issue we covered, the where she's looking after uh, Matt Murdock. Oh, right. Oh, the, the, I thought someone was being clever. She's calling him out for being a cape chaser. And yes. She said, oh, I'm surprised you didn't mention me in the um, Iron Fist. You're absolutely right, yeah. I've forgotten about that. Is my, uh, I'm sticking with the I've forgotten about it thing. <laughs> cape chaser. Yeah, yeah. Luke, is Luke Cage a cape chaser? Uh, apparently. Oh, all right, fair enough. Uh, going undercover in the nightclub is great mm. because she hates nightclubs, which I can relate to. Reference to Bill Hicks. I yeah. hate nightclubs. What was the reference to Bill Hicks? Oh, it's, it's... I can't remember where it is, but she says something like, um, I go to a dance club every year just so I can remember why I hate going to dance yeah. clubs. <laughs> okay. I love how she gets her own back on Matt. That Matt's never actually confided in her that he's the devil, but she's like, he's totally the devil. Yeah. So when she arrives at his house every morning, she doesn't knock at his door or anything. Mm. She just stands outside and waits for him. Because how would a blind man know that she's there? Yeah. Unless he had his radar sense and stuff. So I liked that. That I was very good. With the whole Daredevil stuff, it felt like it grounded it in the Marvel Universe, the stuff that was going on around the time. Yeah, well, it, it ties in as well to Bendis only being interested in Bendis' story. Exactly, that's, that's what I was going to say, but it did feel like I need to have been reading Daredevil at the time to have gotten... Have you never read Bendis' Daredevil? No. It's very good. I, I felt like I didn't need to read it, but to get a more rich... Yeah, you know how it all turned out, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So, you don't need to read it. But it, it's, it has the same problems that this has. It's something like 40 or 50 issues, and it only needs to be 25. Yeah. So, it's good. It's worth reading. Yeah. It's worth picking up. Speedball. Your favourite character, <laughs> Speedball. Shows up as a, a drug addict. Shows up as a drug addict at the end of the issue. And then it suddenly turns into this colourful light show as he sends off his speedy images. Balls. Yeah. And uh, that's just weird. Yeah. It's a weird psychedelic ending. Jessica Drew shows up. Oh, yeah. You know what I did like about this series? What? Or this story, even? Yeah. The, the, dan- the nightclub she goes to is called 616. Oh, right, yeah, that's quite cute. Yeah. I quite, yeah. I, I did, I kind of, did I notice that? I, I may have noticed that, I don't know. But then the last issue is just bollocks. Because it only takes, like, two minutes to read. Yeah. I love the Bagley page. Yeah, and it's setting up the Purple Man story. And it's setting up the Purple Man story. And the Defenders, why are the Defenders after her? Because they're the when she fights the Avengers. Oh, right, so they are. You're absolutely right. And then you see the Avengers. Yes, you are correct. So it's a nice callback to why she doesn't like superheroes, and it's a nice setup to the Purple Man story. Yeah. 
But yeah, you're basically you're right. The conclusion is botched in that it only takes a couple of minutes to read. And basically, she just grabs Matty and runs off. Yeah, that's all that happens. She recovers from Speedball, yeah. runs away, and then there's the conclusion. Which is pretty much it. Yeah. And then she goes back out to going out with Scott Lang, which she clearly doesn't want to do. True. So she, you've got this whole thing that you think she's feeling she needs to be with somebody for the sake of being with somebody. Yeah. When she doesn't really need to do that. It was alright, though, wasn't it? Mm. It was okay. Issue 22 and 23, The Secret Origin of Jessica Jones, we're going to cover fully. Okay. Because I liked these two. For two specific reasons. Ah. Continuity and nitpicks. <laughs> the covers to these two are really good. Yeah. Um, the first one, The Secret Origin of Jessica Jones 1 is another montage thing but what I like about the cover to issue 2 and it's issue 2 issue 23 sorry part 2 that gets the cover of the omnibus and stuff isn't it mm. it's Jessica's face when she was what was her name Jewel, Jewel. and it looks like is, does that look like Bagley yeah it is it's half Bagley it's half Bagley half. and it's reproduced as if it was an old comic with lots of colour dots on it yeah and then it's ripped in half and you get Jessica as drawn by David Mack and that's a really good cover mm. and Jessica's I, I think she's just She's a lot more pleasant. She's got a much nicer face on David Mack's stuff than Gerdas' stuff. Mm. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. The Secret Origin of Jessica Jones Part 1. Fifteen years ago, Midtown High School, young Jessica Campbell was a bespectacled shy girl pining over her schoolgirl crush, Peter Parker. Peter, for his part, is being taunted by his classmates again and attends the demonstration of radioactivity on his own. Jessica follows him, determined to ask Peter out, but just as she screws up the courage, Peter reacts to something and leaves, feeling light-headed. Jessica leaves also upset she didn't get to ask Peter out, and she's so wrapped up in her own thoughts she's nearly run over by a truck screeching through town loaded with radioactive chemicals. An indeterminate amount of time later, but probably not too long, Jessica and her family are driving to Disney World courtesy of her father's employer, Tony Stark. Distracted by Jessica and her brother goofing off in the back seat, Jessica's father crashes the car into a passing army truck, transporting experimental hazardous material, a canister of which conveniently ends up in Jessica's lap. The car gets trapped under the wheels of the truck, then spins out of control over a nearby cliff and blows up. Galactus is outside, about to eat the planet, but the FF, with the help of the Silver Surfer, stops him. <laughs> Galactus with his knife in the park. Despite her advanced age, Jessica is adopted and changes her surname. The death of all her family doesn't seem to have bothered her that much. Yeah. The end. Well, Just stops, doesn't it? A, bro- one? a brother was a bit of a knob. He was. He was. It was little brothers always are. They are. They are. <laughs> Jessica is almost a superhero twice in the opening pages. Yeah. She's behind Peter when he's bitten by a radioactive spider. And then she's pulled out of the way of the truck that blinds Matt Murdock. Yeah. Did you notice that? I did, yeah. She then masturbates to a picture of Johnny Storm. That's been... I, I, I cannot look at that without laughing anymore. It's hysterical. It's turned into a meme now where they replace Johnny Storm's face with Carlton from uh, Fresh Prince. <laughs> is that true? It is. <laughs> Why Carlton? I, I don't Why know. not? Why not? All right, Handsome man he is. Uh, well, he is, yeah. He'd love a bit of Carlton. Uh, I would have thought they would have replaced it with a picture of Chris Evans. 
Because <laughs> it would work, wouldn't it? it, it he was Johnny Storm and he was Captain America. Yeah. So that, would, that would work totally well. Do you remember how Jessica reacted to Civil War? And learning that Peter Parker was Spider-Man? Uh, no, no, no. I don't remember that at all, but I'm sure that must have been interesting. Because I texted Mike Bailey to ask him as well and he'd forgotten. Yeah. Civil War was that memorable. Mm. For all the wrong reasons. I do like the change in art. When? All the way through it. Oh, that Gados is drawing this like an old comic. Yeah. And the colouring is a lot more bright and vibrant. And as if colour. it was an old comic book yeah. as well. It's, uh, it's It looks a lot like Michael Allred, though. Yes, you're absolutely right. Particularly the Johnny Storm page. Yeah. The f- Johnny Storm's face does look an awful lot like Michael Allred. He doesn't draw Galactus on the Silver Surfer very well. Hmm... Is what I will say to that. And it's the issue just finishes. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not a big cliffhanger, is it? Uh, issue 23 continues the story. Jessica returns to Midtown High, where she's even more of an outcast, despite having somehow lost the eyeglasses and having much better her. Charlie's angels take the piss out of her for being in a coma. Flash Thompson reveals himself to be a colossal cock in this regard also. And even when Peter Parker reaches out to her, Jessica knocks him back. Jessica runs off crying, but suddenly finds that, believe it or not, she's walking on her. As with all good Bugs Bunny cartoons, the minute she realises that she's doing this, she falls to the floor. But luckily, she's over the water. Before she can drown, she flies above the water again, before falling into it again. Before she can drown again, Thor doth arrive and verily save Fur Maiden. She pukes all over his boots, a gag Garth Ennis did first and better. After that, Jessica asks her new dad about having superpowers, and then she has a montage where she pushes over a tree, lifts a bike, and runs super fast, which leads to more flying. Elsewhere, the scorpion is robbing a laundromat. Yes, a laundromat. Jessica lands on him and knocks him out. The end. Yeah. Just finishes. Yeah. <laughs> the secret origin of Jessica Jones isn't that interesting, really, That's is it? That's why it's secret. <laughs> not that it's a big top secret classified eyes only thing, because it's not that good. It's, no, no you're, you are absolutely right. There's really not much to this at all. Although it is moderately entertaining. Yeah. It's padded as hell, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's less of an origin and more of a day in the life. Yeah, when she was a kid. It's it's one really good, tight issue. Told in two. Told in two baggy issues. Yeah. Uh, there are seven pages of Jessica crying, learning to fly, falling into the sea, flying, falling into the sea. Which is something Bendis did in Ultimate Spider-Man. Seven Better. pages. Oh, I don't know if he did it better. When he had What's-Her-Face learning to fly, and he set up the whole thing with, you fly with your head, so you point your head in the direction you want to fly. So it's not like the Douglas Adams thing. You just jump, and then when you fall, you miss the earth. <laughs> That's how you fly. Fair enough, yeah. Right. I thought that was a bit much. Seven pages. Yeah. Who's he teaching to fly in Ultimate Spider-Man? He's not. Oh. I can't remember who it is. Uh, She's blonde. And she hates mutants until she finds out she is one. Oh, you know, you know, that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she's teaching herself how to fly. Right. Okay. I don't. I don't remember any of that vaguely. Also, Jessica comes out of her coma after six months and returns to school. All the children now have farah her. It was the eighties. That's the seventies. Is it? Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I know time works differently in the Marvel universe. Well, the best way to show that it's in the past is to show bad her. To show Farrah her. Bad her is symbolic of the past. Farrah Fawcett did not have bad her. <laughs> just, just pointing that out. I 
can't decide about the scorpion scene. On the one hand, it's funny. On the other, it can be read as a yet another too cool for school writer who thinks the only way to write people like this is to make them into a joke. Yeah. Scorpion was never a joke. Just have a two-bit thug. Yeah. Didn't have to be the scorpion. But I guess it's the whole Superman thing. Yeah. How, how do you show that someone's really stronger than beyond Superman? So yeah. how, how do you show Jessica's got superpowers? She beats a supervillain. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. These two issues, though, when I was just writing this, just unheralded, yeah. completely spontaneously, yeah. it brought about the return of... Continuity and Netflix! <laughs> I never thought we'd do these again! But now they've, yet, they've made a return. Here it is. Yep. And you know what's great about that? They weren't planned. Honestly, genuinely, they were not planned. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm not kidding. Okay, yeah. I was just writing it going, this we is continuity and nitpick, surely. All right, you ready? Okay, yeah. As usual, for those lovely listeners that are actually literal-minded, don't take this section too seriously. This is just having fun. Okay. As we did the other times that we've done continuity and nitpicks. It's only four times, isn't it? Was it? Yeah, you know what it is? What? Continuity and nitpicks is going to be one of those things that people remember this show for, yet we only did it a couple of times. It's like Q was only in like six or seven episodes of The Next Generation. Yeah. And they did 150 of them or something like that. Oh, beam me up, Scotty, which yeah, he only which said once. He, he never said it. Did he not? He said, Scotty, beam me up. That's the closest you get. Right, okay. So, yeah, I don't mind that. Yeah. I'm happy with that. <laughs> that will be our legacy. Our continuity <laughs> and nitpicks. We only ever did it four times. <laughs> Anyway, you ready? Yep. You ready for this? This is my favourite part of the note-taking for this week. Absolutely love this. you dug out your comics collection. I dug out my comics collection. I was pouring over issues, <laughs> and I dug out the Marvel handbook for the you Amazing Spider-Man. I totally did. Absolutely. This, this comic was published in 2003. Right. The flashbacks are 15 years earlier, putting them in 1998. Why, then, does Jessica have those 60s cat's eye specs? they were in (laughs) they came back for five minutes yeah alright fair enough speaking of flashbacks the splash page and a few subsequent panels are direct recreations of those appearing in Amazing Fantasy 15 and there's even a nice little after Ditko bit Mm. it's not as good yeah but nice direct recreation which I appreciated the exhibition that Peter attends does not explode and is not being run by Dr. Octopus. Right. So barely two years after being hyped as the all-new and totally canonical origin of Spider-Man, Chapter 1 has been relegated to the circular receptacle. Because otherwise, Jessica blew up and died here. (laughs) And we did now a series. (laughs) So it's already been thrown out. John Burns Chapter 1. The truck that nearly knocks Jessica over is run by the company Ajax and is drawn to look exactly like the truck that blinded Matt Murdock. Right. Okay? Yeah. I looked that up. Right. I went and dug out my Essential Daredevil Volume 1. This cannot be true. Yeah. Matt Murdock was blinded as a child, Mm. wasn't he? Mm. By the time... Spider-Man comes into existence. Yeah. Matt Murdock is already a lawyer. Yeah. Peter is still in high school, and by extension Jessica, are still in high school. The Mm. first time Daredevil meets Spider-Man. Which means he must be at least five to seven years older than Peter Parker. Yeah. That cannot be the truck that that gives 
Matt Murdock yeah, is his blind. That's blindness. what I thought when you pointed it out to me. Yeah. It was nice until I thought, wait a minute. It makes no sense. Nice little touch, though, that, yeah. that bottom panel. Yeah. Peter Parker's climbing Peter up the wall. Peter Parker's climbing up the wall behind you. That's a lovely little touch. But yeah, you're absolutely right. So this is simultaneously happening with Amazing Spider-Man 58, Fancy 15. Mm. So that can't possibly be, tr- be the truck. So that leads us to conclude that New York City's health and safety officers <laughs> learned absolutely nothing from the horrific accident that blinded young Matthew Murdock and continued to let radioactive waste be carried through the city for at least the next seven to ten years. Well, they made the danger sign on the truck a bit bigger. <laughs> Danger zone! It's their fault the blind kids can't see it. Is it really? (laughs) (laughs) Um, There has to be an awful lot of time covered in this story, more so than we're actually led to believe. Jessica is with Peter at the exhibition that gives him his powers, right? Mm -hmm. Then she's in the car accident. When she wakes up, Galactus is here. That is over 45 issues of the Fantastic Four that she's missed if we go by corresponding release date. Which, why would we not? That's pretty much all we've got to go on. Not only that, Mm. but she then returns to Midtown High in part two, does she not? She does. And Flash Thompson and Peter Parker are both still there. Right? Right. Peter graduated in Amazing Spider-Man issue 28. This takes place after Fantastic Four issue 49, which was on sale at the same time as Amazing Spider-Man issue 35. Right. Assuming there's a few weeks between Jessica waking up, being adopted, and returning to school, Peter should be a freshman in college by this point and would no longer be at Midtown High. Presumably, Jessica would get held back because of being off so much, but Peter and Flash would no longer be here. Well, that is assuming that every issue is set at the same time. It is assuming that, but why would we not assume that? So you're saying that the Fantastic Four issue where Peter, where Galactus invaded Earth took place while Peter was still in high school, despite the fact that you were picking up corresponding issues of Amazing Spider-Man where he's a freshman in college? Yes. Okay. Because unless the time is specifically stated... (laughs) It can be set whenever you want it to. These are your no-prize explanations. These are my no-prize explanations. If I've learned anything from DC crossovers, it's that unless there is a specific timeline, it can take place wherever I put it. Okay, alright. The official index of the Marvel Universe for Spider-Man claims that this takes place after Amazing Spider-Man 29. Well, this issue of Alias? Yes. Right. Because in that issue... Peter has graduated. Yeah. But this takes place after Amazing Spider-Man 29. I will tell you for why. The Scorpion is problematic continuity-wise because he starts Amazing Spider-Man 29 by breaking out of prison, seeking revenge on Spider-Man and J. Jonah Jameson. Spider-Man then turns him over to the police at the end of the issue. Prior to this continuity implant, his next appearance is Captain America issue 122 from 1970. Five years in the future from when these stories were published. There's another appearance in Cap in 1972, and then he's back in Amazing Spider-Man 145 in 1975. So it has to take place after Amazing Spider-Man 29. Right. Right? Right. Peter's not in high school in Amazing Spider-Man 29, he's already graduated. Right. Secondly, it's possible that the Scorpion escaped jail 
instantly, or broke away from the police, instantly after Amazing Spider-Man 129, and Jessica stopped him on, like, the next page. But the Scorpion and Amazing Spider-Man issue 29, sorry, was not the idiot this guy is. Right. Of course, one of the reasons continuity and nitpicks was brought back was because our next storyline addresses the continuity problems. Kind of. Bendis basically points out that you'll be crucified if you get it wrong. In that way that implies he thinks you're an asshole if you care about this stuff. So, of course, I'm going to take great delight in pointing out where he makes his continuity errors. <laughs> this is what Michael was alluding to earlier on, yeah. isn't it? Purple. So you don't have a, a no-prize explanation for how Peter is now still in high school, though, even though he's graduated. Flashpoint. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Harrison Wells did it. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Uh, Purple ran through alias issues 24 through 28 and was the conclusion of the series. There's not really a lot to it in terms of actual plot. It is up to all a, a Brian Michael Bendis comic. Uh, and there wasn't really much plot to the entire series. True, yeah. To be fair, but... We find out that early into her career as Jewel, Jessica was corrupted by Jebediah Kilgrave, the purple man, and spent eight months under his thrall. Eight months where he basically treated her as a slave, but he never raped or struck her. One day, fed up with Daredevil getting all the headlines, he orders Jessica to take off and kill the first Avenger she sees. She flies to Avengers Mansion and attacks the Scarlet Witch. The Vision, the witch's husband, is so enraged and punches Jessica so hard she goes into a coma. When she comes out of it, thanks to Jean Grey, she announces she's quitting the business. In the present day, Jessica is hired by a group of people whose loved ones have all been murdered by the Purple Man, although he doesn't admit to it. She goes to Riker's Island to talk to Kilgrave, but he plays games with her, pretending this is all a comic book. When Carnage later breaks out, Kilgrave also escapes, and he returns to taunt Jessica, but Jean Grey planted a trigger in her head to prevent Kilgrave from ever being able to control Jessica again. She punches his lights out, and then tells Luke Cage that she is pregnant with his child. What did you think of Purple, Michael? Uh, I liked it. But uh, I thought this was the best story arc of the run. I felt like there was a lot of build-up, and well-written build-up, for a conclusion which was, Jessica punches the Purple Man. The end. <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm pregnant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I like the, the, the pregnant bit because he handles the character beats a lot better than he handles the action in this. Yeah. Bendis um, was, was born to write indie comics yes so why doesn't he because he's a big name now and there's no money in it and there's no money there's in more it. money in writing for Marvel well I don't know there might be more money for working for IDW you know yeah. Image. yeah well well he's signed another exclusive with Marvel hasn't he has it yeah Ed Brubaker has said he's making more money off his image comics than he did off Marvel yeah on an overall basis in royalties because they get all the money don't they mm. so I don't know I don't know um, it does flesh out why Jessica is as damaged and borderline unlikable as she is. Uh, Gados is as muddy and boring as ever, repeating an awful lot of panels. The copy and paste button did more work than he did in a lot of this. And a lot of the flashbacks in this are drawn by Mark Bagley and are much cleaner and more pleasant to read. Gados is out, he's out does suit the tone. I'll give you that, but I really got bored of the repetition the muddiness and the fact that none of his characters were on model. Does Marvel not have model sheets anymore? Apparently not. 
Apparently not. No. Is Luke Cage is particularly egregious. He looks nothing like the Luke Cage that we've been reading about for 40 years. Mm. What did you think of Bendis turning into Grant Morrison? Mm. He doesn't do it as well as Grant Morrison does, I does he? I liked it because it was neat. What, where the purple man basically talks to us, the reader, and basically makes out to Jessica that her life is a comic book? It's like Bendis wrote the script, and then when he was writing the dialogue, copied and pasted the script. <laughs> From who? No, the what he wrote, because there's a bit where the purple man just says the script. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, I get what you're saying, yeah. He basically just says uh, stuff like, Jessica looks down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I but get what you're saying. It was neat that he did it, but it felt like he read it elsewhere and wanted to copy it. See, to me, it felt very much like, oh, look, Grant Morrison does this stuff all the time. Yeah. And I want to be Grant Morrison. It's, the, the yeah, the inclusion of it was nice, but he didn't do it very well because he was only doing it because he saw it elsewhere and quite liked it. Mm. Uh, I took it as him taking the mick out of the fact that people had probably written into him to point out that he screwed up the continuity. Yeah. And I, I basically read this as him saying, if you care about this, you're an asshole. So yeah. I took great delight in pointing out the places where he's messed up the continuity. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Brian. Mm. I do apologise. Well, no, I don't. Actually, I don't care. Not like the key listens to this drivel, is it? Um, yeah, his, his Purple Man monologue, it was funny. But... But it was look at me funny. Yeah, it was... Because the thing here, if this is a comic book, why don't you just walk out of here? And he says, I'm not the writer. Yeah. And it was... With Animal Man, you got the point that Grant Morrison was building up to that as being the theme of his story. Yeah. Whereas here, the Purple Man breaking the fourth wall, sorry. Purple Man breaking the fourth wall is only there just to be funny. Yeah. Doesn't serve a story purpose. And I think with with Animal Man, well, I can't think of when they've done it before, but they've broken the the fourth wall a lot since Shakespeare, but in comics, it was quite new and different. But here, it's just been done quite a lot. Well, here it doesn't serve any story purpose. Like you say, he says, interior shot, jail, day. Jessica Jones, the S-costume super-adventure, now private eye, comes face-to-face with her greatest foe, her worst nightmare. The enigmatic Kilgrave, the purple man. Tight shot on Jessica. Yeah, it does look like he just copy and pasted his script. And I can't decide if it's clever or everybody look at me clever. Or derivative. Because it works well and it's fun, it's good, but... It smells badly. I see. I agree with you. It is funny, Hmm. and his dialogue is clever. But I was expecting it to, like Grant Morrison did with Animal Man, I was expecting it to some way play into the story and not just be funny, rather than just be there for the sake of it. Yeah. Because it's not like he even makes a big deal about it in issue twenty-eight. In thinking that he's in a comic book, or knowing he's in a comic book, or whatever. I mean, like when he actually says, so this is Jessica's comic book. Subtly as expressive artwork, mainstream with just a touch of indie. Seen worse, been in worse. Yeah. And you're like, piss off. That's a bit precious. Mm. Where he's basically criticising other people's work there. Yeah. You're annoying me and it's already, it's only page one. Mm. And it's, yeah, I expected it to play into the purpose of the story more than it actually did. The Purple Man was set up to be 
scurry. But he was in it too much that he just wasn't. See, I'm wondering how are they going to do... Is, is what version of the Purple Man is Tenet going to play? Is yeah. he going to play this slightly snarky version, which I suspect he is? Mm. Uh, is he going to break the fourth wall? Yeah. Are we going to get a moonlighting thing? With this Purple Man, he was built up to be something Jessica was terrified of him. You had all these flashbacks where he was mm. this scurry, shadowy figure. But he was just in it too much that... He just wasn't... He was annoying and poorly written that he just wasn't this scurry thing he was built up to be anymore. He, he's just... Well, isn't that the point of it, though? That she's conquered her inner demon? I guess, but when the whole conquering is pretty poorly done... Yeah, a really badly drawn Captain America says, wow. Yeah, like, you've got this all this set up. So the, the Purple Man's walking with Jessica, the Purple Man's still and everyone's killed himself. The Avengers just show up. Jessica has a flashback. Jessica punches the purple man. The end. Yeah, when she realises that Jean Grey's planted that thing in her head so she never has to go through this again. Yeah. And Scott Lang bails on her when she says she's pregnant with somebody else. Which yeah. doesn't paint him in a particularly nice light, but I can understand it. True. But she's been pining for Luke Cage all the way through. So. And I, I, I like the bit with Luke Cage. <laughs> I like the bit with Luke. Luke Cage has been the best one, in it? Luke Cage and, and Jessica Jones are one of like my favourite is one of my favourite comic book relationships. It's one of the best threads throughout all of Bendis' Marvel work. Are they still together? Last I read, yeah. I've just put all these issues together because I'm going to put them away and as of issue 13, the comics are bigger. Yeah. Aren't they? Right, oh good. Because what, what happens is you go through Pulse, right? Yeah. And then there's the Avengers, the new Avengers. Yeah. Luke Cage is on the new Avengers. Yes, he is. Then, um, after the whole Civil War, the Avengers and the New Avengers get back together just for the Avengers, but the two separate books. Right. And they live in two buildings. The Avengers live in Stark Towers. The New Avengers live in the old Avengers mansion. Right. And Jessica Jones just lives with them. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Good. I'm glad they're, they're still together. You think they're going to get together in the series? Well, they're doing both the series, so yeah. crossovers. And they're all going to get together for the Defenders. Yeah. So well, they're doing the Defenders. Yeah, it's the, this is culminating. Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage and Iron Fist yeah. is culminating with the Defenders. Right, cool. Which is going to be all four of them getting together to stop something. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that works. I want Squirrel Girl to be in it. <laughs> Squirrel Girl is the nanny for, for the baby in the she? Avengers. She is, yeah. Oh, so, so, you, so you're making me want to read it. There's a bit of a weird scene where she hits on Daredevil and Daredevil's a bit creeped out by it. How old is Squirrel Girl supposed to be? That's what Daredevil asks. Ah, right. And she responds, old enough to thank the man who just saved my life. <laughs> is this a Bendis issue? It is. Yeah, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, anyway, for possibly the last time, but never say never. Yeah. Continuity and nitpicks! <laughs> Judging by the fact that the Avengers and the Defenders are at Avengers Mansion when Jessica arrives to punch out Scarlet Witch, we can assume that this takes place after the Avengers Defenders War, which started in Avengers 115 from September 1973 and concluded in Avengers 118 from December 1973. We wouldn't have to assume if the editor did his job and put a footnote in, although he'd probably be all snarky and say people can just look it up on Wikipedia. Although if the editor did his job in this regard, we wouldn't have a continuity nitpick section, would we? So. Also, if Bendis is going to call us out and getting hung up on this stuff, at least we can point out why we call him out on it. Yep. So that's my theory for doing what we're doing. Anyway, Bendis calls the vision the Scarlet Witch's husband, or Jessica does, 
But they didn't marry until Giant Sized Avengers issue 4, which wasn't published until June 1975. It's possible this was a later Avengers... Avengers? Avengers team... I'm having that. All right, I'm sticking with it. It's possible this was a later Avengers team up, but it seems to me Bendis picked this for a reason. And if you're going to get in my face about that being an extraordinary nitpick, I think you missed the name of the section. (laughs) Playing no prize explanation, it is possible Jessica just doesn't know when they got married. Yeah. She just may think they've always been married, so you can get around that one. But the reaction the Vision has definitely means they're married. That's possibly a mistake, then. Could be. Yeah. When the Purple Man has his fit, he mentions being pissed off with Daredevil, which is understandable, but also Spider-Man. Spider-Man has fought the Purple Man only a handful of times, but it has to have been a recent battle for it to be bugging the Purple Man so much. The most notable Spider-Man Purple Man clash is Marvel Team-Up Annual Number 4, which guest starred Luke Cage, Iron Fist and Daredevil. Yay. Appropriately enough. However, this was published in June 1981. Right. Many years after that would have happened with Jessica in 1973-ish. In continuity time, not in real time. It also contradicts the next continuity nitpick. Right. Jean Grey enters Jessica's mind to help her come out of her coma and plant the literal trigger that needs to be pulled out in the last act. So that was very clever of it. Chekhov's gun kind of thing. Plant that there, it'll be used later on very good. However, he has Jean be in her Phoenix outfit. The issue of X-Men that corresponds with Avengers 118 is issue 85. Phoenix wouldn't be a character until X-Men issue 94, a gap of 20 months real time. Right. I guess it was a really long coma. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, none of it works right. with the Purple Man Spider-Man thing. Yeah. Because Jean Grey was dead before Spider-Man fought the Purple Man in Marvel Team-Up Annual Number 4. Right. <laughs> oh, I love continuity and nitpicks. We should do more retroactive continuity stories just so we can bring this section back on a more regular basis. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe that way it's six special. That it's not regular. It'll take it away from me. It will, yeah. Alright, fair enough. Uh, there was a final issue, kind of, what if Jessica Jones joined the Avengers, which was half a reprint of the issue where Jessica refuses to join the Avengers, but in the what if, she says yes, then she stops Scarlet Witch from causing House of M, for which we thanked her for, and then she marries Steve Rogers. So it's less of a what if and more a case of so what. Very, very dull. Ah. You didn't miss anything by not reading it. I don't it. think I did read it. Did you not? Ever? No, it's not worth it. Brian Michael Bendis is in it. Right. Okay. Because he obviously thinks he's more important than you are to the Watcher. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really, even if in a what-if situation, I don't see Captain America marrying Jessica Jones. No, it just, it's, it was terrible. It was really, really bad. Was it still Michael th- Gados? I think so, yeah. Right. Can you imagine two couple, a couple that are more mismatched? Yeah. Unless the next page was, what if Jessica Jones had got divorced? <laughs> that would... And then she starts Elias. Yeah. And then she starts the private detective edit, so, yeah. What do you think of the last story arc? I liked it. What do you think of Elias as a whole? I, I really, um, really like Elias, or at least <laughs> I remembered liking it. <laughs> Reading it with a critical eye isn't the best option. No. Read it to enjoy it. Yeah. And it's it's one of the... You will... If you pick up the omnibus for this, you will tear through it in a day or two. Yeah. I read them all in two or three days, and I was doing notes. Mm. You read them all in, what, less than 24 hours? Yeah. So, it's... If you don't like Bendis' stuff, it's everything that you don't like about Bendis' stuff. Mm. If you can... 
if, like me, you can occasionally tolerate him, you may get some enjoyment out of it. Yeah. But I can't read everything he does. That would just be too much for me. Alright, well that's it. We hope the Netflix series ends up being as good as... Uh, as. De- oh, you've not said who you thought you should be cast as a... Oh yeah, uh, Kristen Stewart. Yeah. Because... Bland. She- <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't thinking bland. I was more thinking, you know, in this panel she looks a lot like Kristen Stewart. Wait a minute. She does in every panel. Yeah, she does look more like Kristen Stewart than Kristen Ritter. Maybe yeah. they got the wrong Kristen. Could be. When they were casting the part. Mm. I mean, I don't think Kristen Stewart is the greatest actress in the world. But I think Kristen... I don't think she's the greatest actress in Twilight. I think Kristen Ritter's a very... An actress who can only play one character. Mm. So she, the, she, the bitchy girl in your high school, which she is in... Which everything she is she's in, in everything that she's in, yeah. Alright, so maybe she'd have been quite good. Anyway, we look forward to it, because David Tennant's always good value. Yeah, I think he'll be Scottish. I doubt it. Or oh, is he going to do his bad American accent? I don't know, because I was reading The Purple Man with David Tennant's Scottish voice and it worked. All right, all right maybe he will be. Because there's no reason he can't be Scottish. Yeah. You know. Doesn't actually say it, though, does it? I could go with that. All right, next time on our new episode of Hey Kids Comics, we will be continuing our look at comic book characters that are about to become television shows by looking at Peter David's last arc on Supergirl, Many Happy Returns. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. opens her eyes it is six months later Galacticus is Galacticus the Battlestar Galacticus yeah Galacticus <laughs> Galacticus blood and sand Battlestar Galacticus is blood Spartacus meets Battlestar Galactica yeah I would so watch that show I would watch the heck out of that would it be set in space or in and what's the common denominator what Lucy Lawless okay no, it's set in the past when the Galacticans get to Rome. Oh, okay, yeah, so yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> There you go. Even though they're dead before then. They're descendants. Oh, okay. So they can all be played by the same actors. Right. Yeah, so Lucy Lawless is in it. And, oh, you know, okay. So it works. Right. works in my head. Sure. <laughs> doesn't need to work in anyone else's. It doesn't need to work in anyone else's, no.